Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. My name is Katrina Stanson. I'm Ineash Brodsky. And I'm Stephen Zuber. And Katrina, why don't you introduce our guest and our topic for today? Our guest is Tim, and he's here. Um, we're going to be talking about voting. So a very topical topic. And Tim is especially uh, the right person to talk about this because he has a master's in economics from GMU, from George Mason University. And um, he especially focused on voting and voter theory. Public choice. Oh, right. It's called public choice. Public choice economics. Thank you for the correction, Tim. <laughs> is public choice just a fancy term for voting? No. No? Okay. Uh, economics of political decision-making. It's economic analysis of public policy, not just of what policy is or looks like or how it affects the economy, but how it gets made, what sorts of policies do get made and why, the incentives involved, things like that. Okay. So lately, I've, I've noticed that it's been all the rage to say that it is not worth it to vote. Do, yes, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, before we dive into that, I wanted to say, I'm anticipating at least one listener saying, George Mason University, that's where uh, Robin Hanson teaches. Did you yeah. take any classes, classes under Robin Hanson? I did not take any classes with Robin Hanson. Why? Oh. I had, I've met him, though. Okay. I had, that counts. I had two classes with Ryan Kaplan, who is also somewhat community adjacent. I've heard him too, yeah. Yeah. So. I hear outside of rationalism, uh, Brian Kaplan is the more more well-known name. Oh, nice. Well, Brian Kaplan did the um, the myth of the rational voter, didn't he? That's right. And he also has the Marginal Revolution blog? No, that yeah. is Tyler Cowan and Alex Tepper. Ah, I always get Tyler Cowan and Brian Kaplan mixed up. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just Sorry to both of them. <laughs> <laughs> so you did get to meet him in real life, though? Yeah. Is he nice? Seems like a fairly nice guy and very, from what I've seen of him, like kind of shy and unwilling to speak much. He is not unwilling to speak. No, okay. No. Who does the food blog? Uh, Tyler Cowan blogs about food uh, Okay. Now that that was my run-in with Tyler Cowan is uh, how we, Tim and I would decide what ethnic restaurant to go to. Oh. Katrina actually got to see Robin in action. I did? Yeah. Do you remember when we saw Franz Duval speak? I do remember that. Yeah. Oh, you mean the questioner. Yes. Yeah, thank goodness. Thank goodness there was somebody there to put that guy in his place. (laughs) (laughs) He was just going off the rails talking about animal behavior and why you need to be kind to each other. Mm. The connections were very poor. Uh, Franz Duval is a very... Famous primate researcher. Yes, primate researcher. He is extraordinarily knowledgeable about empathy in animals. That does not give you enough information to say that we should be more empathetic in public policy. Ah, which was what he was trying to claim? Yes, actually. It yeah. seemed strange to hear you disagreeing with him just now since you seem to like animals quite a bit. I do like animals quite a bit. It's, I just don't like um, logical stretches. Yeah. <laughs> there's uh, Daniel Dennett has a quote that there's nothing that gets, there's nothing bugs me more than a bad argument or position I agree with. <laughs> it's like no, oh, I like yes. I like where you're going with this, but I don't like how you got there. Can you just can we talk about this differently? Yeah, yeah. I I totally feel him, um, absolutely. And I felt that way during the Friends Duval talk, and I felt that way with all the people who wanted me to read Ishmael by Dan Quinn. <laughs> like, what's wrong with you people? This is so poorly argued. What's Ishmael about? Oh, it's it's mostly about how. Gosh, I think his conclusion was we should all go back to subsistence farming or something. Oh. It was a strongly Malthusian 
novel. And the conclusion, if any, I think, is that population control would be necessary. Yeah. And, uh, um, especially it, in Africa. It's been a long time, but it did not take me long to decide that I did not like it and that all the people who recommended it have poor taste in, in novels. Population control is especially needed in Africa? It seems so, like a somewhat self-serving argument. Not, this might be something worth Googling. Yeah, let's not, <laughs> put, not, words, let's not put words into anybody's mouths for things that I've read 15 or more years ago. Right. Same. And, um, yeah, instead, you know what would be awesome? Let's mm-hmm. talk about voting. Let's talk about the voting. Oh, so, yeah, back, back to the question I started out with that yeah. I've heard lately. It's all the rage to say that it's not worth your uh, the time and effort to vote. That. Strongly depends on your utility function. <laughs> What's the utility function? So, should we start just explaining decision theory? Yeah. What's it? Yeah. What yeah, is it? Okay. What does um, my utility function look like when I'm deciding if I want to vote or not? Right. So the artifice of economics and several other disciplines is that people are modeled as individual agents. They have utility functions, which means they have states of the world that make them happier, and they try to attain those states. Those utility functions can look like anything. In actual practice, they, at least in humans, have a rather specific structure. Can I, uh, as a quick aside, confirm something that I've suspected but never actually confirmed before? The term function and utility function, is that an artifact from calculus? where a function is like a graph, a, 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 a long equation with a number of variables in it? I mean, a line. Does it look like a line? Yes. Like, do I have a utility? <laughs> Thank you. So I might have like an um, exponential utility function regarding, uh, or a logarithmic one regarding Oreo consumption. Right. So a utility function along two dimensions will look like a line. In fact, our utility functions are along many, many more than two dimensions. But the idea is you start with two dimensions, derive some conclusions, and try to generalize them. So, so it is okay to think of it in terms of an, an equation? Yes, it absolutely is an equation. They are usually f of x equals u yeah. as utility to the something power, and what that power will be raised to will be a function of risk preference. If it's raised to power of 1, then Risk neutral, power less than one, risk averse, power greater than one, risk loving. So it's a way to quantify what people want in, in, in a mathematical way. Yes, and it strongly relies on the concept of expected utility. Utility being, again, states of the world, make you happier, give you utilons, if you, <laughs> whatever, some measure of happiness. Um, utils? Utils, yes. I like that better. I do too. Uh, expected meaning that you obviously do not have perfect prediction of the future. You have some estimate of probability states of the future, and you act according to those probability states. So expected value of a coin flip, for example, is if you assign heads 0 and tails 1, the expected value is 0.5. So expected utility would be the expected value of your utility function given these on action or set of actions. So it kind of seems like you dodged the question, though, by saying it depends on what your utility function is. It The the arguments I've seen are along the lines of your individual vote uh, has such a small chance of making a difference 
that you're just as well off playing the lottery as you are going to the voting booth. And Especially because the payoff for the lottery is much greater than the payoff of getting a one candidate that's only slightly different from another candidate. Right. So it's not a dodge. People mostly, I think, do not vote. Take a step back. There are reasons to vote that are instrumental. Like the candidate will give me this and I want this. Or the candidate will give my friends this and I want my friends to have this. There are reasons to vote that are non-instrumental, like I got an I voted sticker and it makes me feel happy. <laughs> it's not, or it, it's instrumental in the sense of you are getting something that you want. It is not instrumental in the sense of it has to do with public policy at all. Lots of people, uh, I think, vote for non-instrumental reasons. We have an American culture civic religion, whatever you want to call it, that strongly encourages voting, says you have a civic duty to vote, people take moral pride out of it, people vote for expressive reasons, like the same reason you cheer at a football game. One person cheering is not going to make your team more likely to win, but it's fun to cheer. Uh, so that's another reason people might vote. But are there reasons to vote? If we ignore the more expressive reasons, the what you would call the non-instrumental reasons to vote, are there actual strong instrumental reasons to vote generally? It is a function of the probability of your changing the election mm -hmm. and the size of the difference between the candidates' positions and instrumental value for you. So first, the probability, this is how we, you know, the expected thing, you have to multiply by the probability of something happening. Indeed, it is true, the probability of any one individual's vote deciding an election is very small, especially a very large election. Since we are talking about a winner-take-all system, the probability of being the deciding vote is the only probability that matters, at least in the United States, because if you were outvoted by a million people, then there would be no policy changes if you had voted. So you have to have decided the election or the policy to have everything to multiply the policy changes by. And then the policy changes themselves, they can't just be, it's not just the value of your candidate's policies, it's the value of your candidate's policies minus the alternative candidate's policies. And if the differences between the candidates are very small, then those differences are, that value is going to be rather small. If the differences between the candidates are large, then that could potentially be, you know, a very, very large number. So I have uh, a question. Yeah. Um, it's about mail-in ballots. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about instrumental reasons to vote mm -hmm. and non-instrumental reasons. And it seems to me that non-instrumental reasons are probably pretty important yes. in our voting culture. Um, how do mail-in ballots impact that? Because people can't see you voting if you're doing a mail-in ballot and you can even lie to your parents and wait, and you can even lie to other people <laughs> <laughs> and tell them that you did vote when they ask you. And, um, you know, aside from the negative, the negative feelings associated with lying about it, you'll kind of be in the same, in the same position as far as other people's in, signaling as yeah. far as signaling goes yeah it's a great question so if people were voting for mostly instrumental reasons 
mail-in ballots lower the cost of voting. You don't have to go outside, stand in a cold line. You can just write some things and put it in the mail. But if people are voting for largely expressive reasons, then the mail-in ballot might actually reduce votes. Huh. Uh, there was a particular country, or maybe a county in the country, I think Sweden, where they adopted a policy of just a big campaign to get mail-in ballots to every single household, and voting went down. Wow. Yeah. Because I vote much more now that I have my mail-in ballot. Right. I don't have to wait waste an hour or two of my life. Mm, but if people are voting for largely expressive reasons, you, you're not going in and getting sicker anyway. Probably no one's even going to ask you, but if they do, you can say, I mailed it in. Yeah, voting participation actually uh, decreased slightly. So people in that country don't think their vote makes a lot of difference then? Uh, it probably doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so you were talking earlier about what the chances are of something, of one person changing a vote in a, a state that is actually, where can make a big difference. It's a swing state. There's, a you know, much closer to 50-50. Making a big difference is... Uh, in quotes. Well, <laughs> some, right. some heavy quotes around So that. there are a whole lot of ways to model the probability of deciding election. Standard models, you will sometimes see economists give uh, very, very low numbers for the probability of being decisive in a large election like a, a U.S. presidential election. Those numbers uh, can be... You could win. You could win the Powerball dozens of times in a row before you ever decide an election. Um, Andrew Gelman, I hope it's pronounced Gelman, has been doing some more empirical work and modeling a bit differently, trying to take into account things like swing states, trying to take into account the, the models that give those very low numbers are fairly primitive. They sort of treat voters as if they're uh, coin tosses. Um, so Andrew Gilman's work has shown that for some states, a few swing states, if I remember, I can only remember two, New Mexico and Colorado, I do not remember the others, that if you live in one of those states and you do not have extra information from polls or something like that on the day of the election telling you that one candidate is utterly dominating the other, if you have good reason to think it's pretty close in those states. It can be as low as one in 10 million. That's your chance of making a difference? That is the chance of one vote deciding the U.S. presidential election in one of the four states. That's so actually that's pretty high. One it, in 10 million? Well, compared to in... Compared to one in uh, however many, several billion. But then there are states like New York where uh, I believe the estimate was a lot closer to one in a billion. Yeah. And the Powerball, I think, last I checked, was a little lower than one in 300 million. So you could win it you know, like three and a half times. See, if I had to kill two hours yeah. of my day for a one in 10 million chance, I don't think I would take it. Right. So it really strongly depends on what you think the policy differences between those candidates are and whether or not you think they are large enough to justify it. And it depends on where in the United States you live. But... Uh, yeah, to give you, just for comparison, there have been 56 U.S. presidential elections since having the country. So one in 10 million <laughs> is much higher than those other estimates. It is still not very high. Um, it is absolutely possible that policy differences could be large enough to make voting rational in one of states. Probably not so much in New York. What if you have the opportunity to 
um, get a whole bunch of people to vote. Candidates obviously put a great deal of effort into not only getting people to vote, but pleasing voters, right? Yes. So it matters to them to move large groups of people. Yes, absolutely. And so if you could spend the same time that you would have spent voting, encouraging, successfully encouraging 10 other people to vote, then you have done 10 times what you could do by yourself, right? So yes, encouraging other people to vote, vote can be far, far, far more effective than voting yourself conceivably. Are we potentially doing something bad here by um, telling people that it's irrational to vote? I actually have. Not that we're telling people that, but could that be a bad thing to tell people that it's irrational to vote? I want to interject there really quick. Uh-huh. So that one of the reason, one reason people might want to go out and vote rather than uh, say mail it in is that you have to. Your employer has to be okay with you taking the day off of work or taking that time off of work. A lot of people hate their jobs and they are excused for those hours to go vote, right? Mm, I don't think they are. Really? Yeah. I'm pretty positive. Uh, they are. They are. Yes. Oh, okay. But they don't get them paid. No. No. Okay. But but, but you can't be fired for having taken the time off to vote. I see. That's that would be a you would get your butt sued. Okay. Yeah. I, sued butts. I do actually have a couple. Um, theoretical, uh, rational reasons to vote, but I wanted to get through those in a little bit because we were talking just now, you said that it'd be worth it to, if you could spend the time you would use voting to get even two or three other people to vote, that's much more worth it. Isn't that kind of putting us in a red queen race though, where everyone is best off using all their time getting everyone else to vote and we're dumping mass amounts of resources, wasting basically mass amounts of resources and time in something that we could not waste those resources in if we just all agreed not to? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. Voting is costly. It takes time. It takes lots of people to tabulate votes. It takes Voting is expensive, and the larger your country, the more expensive it is. And you can significantly reduce the cost of taxpayer expense by reducing the number of people who vote. Oh. Uh, so to go back to my question... <laughs> Would it be a good thing to encourage people not to vote? Or if, if, if we were in a position to actually make any kind of difference, or would that be an absolutely terrible thing because we would potentially be um, getting more educated people to vote less compared to um, potentially other well, demographics? Who, who are you targeting in your don't vote campaign? <laughs> well, let's say we're, we are targeting fans of rationality and less wrong. Or generally it's people who are amenable to like decision theory based arguments, right? Mm. So that won't, that won't appeal to the emotional voter, but it might appeal to somebody who is thinking, is it worth it to me to vote to, to this year or not? They might be in a sort of reason here, this, they might be swayed like, you know what, fuck it, forget it. So I want to give a round of applause to you guys. Did, 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 were you reading up on decision theory before this, or did you guys just come up with this on the fly? I was doing a little homework, but how, yeah. did, that, how did that weigh in formally? Oh, I, I was just wondering because uh, um, the timeless decision theory has something to say about voting, which is very similar to what oh, you just said. sure. I didn't read up on timeless decision theory today, but I'm vaguely familiar with it. So. Did, did you want to tackle this? or No, go ahead if you've got it. Okay. Uh, well, um, one of the things that Eliezer works on is uh, artificial intelligence. And so he has a slightly different perspective on things. One of those being, if you have a single intelligence uh, programmed artificially, you can replicate that intelligence many, many times. 
And so it's important to make an intelligence that is okay cooperating with itself. For example, um, in Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, there's one point where Harry Potter is talking with Draco Malfoy and they talk uh, about Pansy Parkinson. And Harry says, look, if two pansies were to run into each other, would they team up and like become more powerful and take over the school? Or would they just backstab each other and be awful and be even worse off? And the, the well, the answer in the story is Pansy Parkinson obviously would not cooperate with herself. And so it's bad to have more agents like her. But any ideology that depends on it not being spread because it's toxic, I think is going to fail eventually. So you want to have a decision theory that if everyone else were to adopt your decision theory, the world would be better rather than worse. Should we articulate the uh, prisoner's dilemma for the sake of formalizing that argument? I think we've done it already in the previous episode. If we're talking about voting, it's probably closer to just externality or public goods. Sure. So does everyone know what an externality is? I do, but please tell us again. In economics, if you have a two-party transaction, any effects they have on third parties that have no say whatsoever on the transactions and externality. They can be positive or negative. So I buy a really nice shirt from some store and someone sees my shirt and they're like, oh, that's nice. They weren't part of the transaction, but they got to see the nice shirt. <laughs> or if I drive my car, it emits carbon into the atmosphere and contributes to climate change, that would be a negative externality. And uh, because, you know, I bought the car, I bought the gas, no one who, you know, the people in Africa being affected by climate change definitely didn't have anything to say about that transaction. So uh, that would be negative externality. And voting can have either a positive or, ex- or negative externality because you go and vote your decision very incrementally, just like, just like pollution, very incrementally to a very small degree affects a large number of other people. And so if you vote well, you can have a strong positive externality on the world. If you vote... Minor positive externality, The expected... um, Right, just just like the expected utility. The expected effect is very small. But the thing with externalities is they add up. So externalities are not necessarily... Winner take all like that. <gasps> okay. The plot thickens. <laughs> Go on. So <laughs> if you are informed and know a whole lot about public policy and so on, and you vote, you might have, you might encourage positive externalities. Of course, the other thing is whether or not you even can have people have different values. If we vote for two different things, is it because one of us is more informed on policy than the other, or is it because... I really like Oreos and you really like Numinos. I don't know. I still think that that externality thing is trying to count the same the same effect twice because you still have almost no chance of making a difference and therefore the actual externality of your vote in most cases is zero. The Yes, it is very close to zero. But um, and the same is true of driving your car. Right. If you drive down the street, the amount you contribute to climate change is so negligible as to be... Uh, completely not worth your time. And so the way it factors into your personal decision-making, just like 
the instrumental value if the difference between candidates are lower, the probability of deciding the election is very low. Just like that, the way that externality factors in your decision making is smaller and smaller. The lower effect it has on you, the less you will take it into account in your decision making. And the more it is spread across the entire world, the less it's going to be put on you and taking into account the probability of deciding elections put on you even less. So if people like to vote for reasons that are expressive, non-instrumental, so on, and people are not good at voting, the conclusion is that for a large number of people, their voting is a negative externality on the rest of us that they don't take into account in their decision making. Well, I well that's get, the that's the thing about externalities is it's something that you do not take into account, right? Yeah. Or you take into account less than the would be societally optimal. I, I do think it would be in this case important to go back to the the timeless decision theory, though, because in in the case of timeless decision theory, when you make a choice. You are literally making the choice, the same choice for everyone who has a decision theory that is identical to yours, and in a way, making the same choice for everyone who has a, a, um, a decision theory very similar to yours. So when I choose not to vote, then everyone who is sufficiently like me also chooses not to vote. And that is a problem because that means that people who are like me won't vote and won't be represented. Whereas if I choose to vote, then I can be assured that everyone else who is sufficiently like me and has thought of these things will also vote because they have come to the same conclusion. Yes. Uh, but it might not be a good thing if you are a lousy voter. Wow. If you are I a lousy have the voter, best voter and, sir. You make a, and you have a decision theory that says, I'm going to vote no matter what, and everyone like you votes no matter what, then negative externalities all around. Hooray. Um, if you are a very well-informed and good voter, then you would want a decision theory that, yes, encourages you and other people to vote. So the thing with the negative externality is you don't take that into account, and so you get too much of it. The same is true of positive externalities. You don't take into account so you can get too little of it. So a timeless decision theoretic agent would hopefully have a decision theory that says, I will vote on things where I am very well informed. I will not vote on things where I'm not well informed. Now, the other thing with this whole probability of a vote being very, uh, deciding election being very low, is that voters don't have very much incentive to get informed. Yeah. And if you want to read more on that, you can read uh, Carpinian Keeter's What Americans Know About Politics and Why It Matters. If you want to just be aghast and absolute horror of how ignorant your fellow citizens are about even the basics of anything in our government. Uh, that's the book for you. So the answer is everyone who's listening to this podcast should vote, but encourage everyone who isn't listening to the podcast to not vote. That's yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Do we have a lot of neo-reactionary listeners? Because I don't. I don't know. Actually, we don't know who our listeners are. No, we haven't ever done any poll or anything. Mm. Well, they don't believe in democracy anyway. That's true. So. <laughs> that would be going against their intrinsic values. Okay, well then, I was going to say, um, you were talking earlier about other possible reasons to vote, even if you aren't necessarily well-informed, I think. Did yeah, you say that earlier? I, I did. Um, 
I mean, there's other reasons to vote. One might be you feel good, you're cheering, rah, rah, rah. You have a significant other who is irrational and for some reason really thinks that you should vote. Um, that's a little bit of a mea culpa right there. <laughs> I apologized. And um, <laughs> How do you feel about the bowling hack? I don't know about the bowling hack. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually what it's called. I just, that's how I remember it. Um, the hack being... Uh, the best thing to do is to find someone who you like enough to bowl with, but who you know is going to vote the opposite of you on just about everything. And instead of going to the polls, both of you go bowling. So that way, your vote will have been you know, nullified for your positions, but his vote against you would have been nullified. The net effect would be no difference to the actual voting um, results, but the two of you have a wonderful time bowling and maybe build some bridges between you know, the political you divide. Should- Yeah, that's that's great. You should go bowling, but you also, or you could just not show up to vote and have a party. And it doesn't matter what people, um, if people have different opinions on what candidates or policies they want to back, because the the chances of either of you making a difference are so vanishingly small that there is really no need to do that. I actually have an acquaintance who hates Donald Trump. And says that in this election, he will vote for Donald Trump just to prove to everyone how little his vote matters. So that I think, sounds like the biggest waste of time. <laughs> he can, he can prove his point. Just tell people to read Andrew Gowen's paper. <laughs> right. I, 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 I don't like the, the idea of the party so much because most of the people will be like you. I like the idea of finding one other person who's opposite of you. And, and they'll yeah, find you both don't want to go to my party. That's fine. Oh, no, I'd love yeah. to go to your party. Are Never. you having a party? Sure, maybe. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go to Katrina's no one votes party. It doesn't matter anymore. Oh. I think the bowler act, there seems to be that like there's some benefits to say, since we all know Katrina's going to vote for Trump, and I don't want Trump to win, I'll cancel Katrina's vote by voting for like Bernie Sanders, right? Yeah. So I think that's... Well, vote by voting for the Democratic candidate. Right. But rather than... That's as realistic as me voting for Trump. Right. So, oh, wait. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> we need the sad trombone effect right there. Bernie Sanders winning the nomination is as low probability as you voting for Trump. Yes. That is what oh, she was saying. Significantly oh, wow. higher, but you think it's higher? Uh, Predict Wise is currently giving it 3%. Yeah, I would have signed something like a 1 in a million chance to you voted for Trump. I think the odds are a little higher for, for Bernie, but I'm not too invested. But the idea is that, you know, if, if for whatever reason you can't convince, convince this person to go out and bowl with you and make it your friend, uh, at the very least, you can you can nullify one vote for a party that you don't like, right? No. But I'm not sure. Is that a complete waste of time, or is there any merit to that? It like, should have exactly the same effect as not voting at all. So, <laughs> I guess you're right. So, like, if, the, that, if what, that's the only purpose of doing the vote, then yeah, I'd say it's probably a waste of time. So, yeah, well, if you're if you're really worried about being that one guy who you could have cast a vote and it would have made the difference and you don't want to be the guy who fucks everything up for everyone, you just find one guy from the opposite side to go bowl with you and it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> or or if, you're that, if, you're that, if you're inclined to that kind of thinking of, you know, what if I'm the one of a billion, you should just spend all your, I'm surprised you don't spend all your time at the gas station buying lottery tickets. Right, right, right. Although you would have to be absolutely certain that that one guy would have voted if you hadn't had intervened with the bowling. Right, yeah. yeah. So there's another, um, I was reading, there was an essay by Peter Singer that I read years ago and I went and found again today so I could find the right quote. And in Australia, compulsory voting is the law of the land where everyone has to vote without good reason and they get like 95% turnout. 
people are pissed about that too. Yeah, a lot of people don't like it. Peter Singer does argue in favor of it, but he argues in, he argues in favor of a lot of things. I think just to be contrarian. In, on, on his website, there's a lot of essays that I think he just writes just to be thought-provoking. This might not be one of them. So what's his argument for? His argument for it is sounds sort of deontological, right? Where um, if everyone follows the line of reasoning that, well, it's a waste of time to go stand in line and vote, or you know, even just take the three minutes it takes to fill out the mail-in ballot and drop it at the mailbox next time I'm there, that time could be spent somewhere else. And the odd, you know, because about making a difference are so small, it's just not worth it. But the problem with that is then it would, let's see, Quote, yet if many people follow this line of reasoning and do not vote, a minority of the population can determine the country's future, leaving a discontented majority. And that that seems to make sense um, in the fact that, say, if only 5% of the population cares about voting, well, they're going to be the ones who decide everything, right? Right. I think this goes back to the legitimacy of government that, you know, before there was democracy, how did you decide if a government was legitimate or not? Well, it's the the government that, that God chose. God decided that this government is legitimate. So who are you to argue with God? And uh, once we kind of did away with that whole notion of God chooses the government, there has to be some other societally accepted excuse for why this group of people gets to make the laws and control all of our lives. Well, if they really don't care and they're really uninformed, then they shouldn't be voting because of the negative externalities of voting. See, yes, but also no, because if a country has high voter turnout, that gives the system legitimacy. And if you like the country you're in right now, well, because it, it is psychologically, people think if the vast majority of people have voted, then this is the will of the people. So they're less likely to what, revolt? Yes. It's basically an argument for if you like your society and you want it to stay stable, you try to increase voter turnout. If you want the society to become destabilized and maybe spark some sort of revolution or a populist uprising that gets like a Trump, for example, into office, uh, you want to reduce voter turnout as much as possible so people will have less space in the system. Mm, seems like a very dubious empirical claim to me. I, it could be, but I, I think it would be a great reason for the neo-reactionaries to try to discourage voting as much as possible. Hmm. Because when almost no one is voting, how can you say, I have the will of the people behind me, and that is why I have the right to pass these laws? Well, oh, that gets us to several topics. First, two comments on Pinker's quote. Uh, one, there's an equilibrium. The you, fewer people... You said Pinker, it was Peter Singer. Oh, I thought you said Stephen Pinker. Peter Singer. <laughs> <laughs> sort of illiterate, don't Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Singer. Okay, well, one, there's an equilibrium. Fewer people vote, it increases the probability of deciding the election, increases the instrumental value of deciding the right. So, um, economics. Yeah, <laughs> economics. <laughs> the second, though, um, this idea of a popular mandate or rule of the minority. Is everyone familiar with errors and possibility theorem? Um, no. I'm not either. Not. Okay. So um, Kenneth Arrow in um, 1967-ish wrote a paper uh, proving that no voting system could satisfy a list of several desirable qualities. Errors and possibility theorem states that there's no voting system that can fulfill a few very desirable axioms. Those axioms being one, non-dictatorship. One person doesn't just get to override one or even however many people's votes or say uh, what they say in the matter. Uh, no topics, policies, bills, laws, whatever are off the table. Everything is allowed to be voted on. 
in the United States. This is called unrestricted domain. In the United States, we don't quite have this, the Bill of Rights. Uh, I mean, we can overturn any bill we want in the Bill of Rights, but it requires a supermajority. But we uh, have taken some topics off the table effectively. Um, monotonicity, which is the idea that if a candidate gets more popular with any one or any group of voters, that should not hurt their chances of winning. Some voters, some voting systems actually uh, have this flaw that if one candidate rises in popularity, it causes them to lose. Huh. <laughs> what, what voting system would that be? I don't remember the exact ones, but lots of voting systems have ranked preferences. And that causes some of these uh, oddities. Oh, because ranked preference usually results in the candidate that is least hated, not the candidate that is most liked. Right. Exactly. The independence of irrelevant alternatives. Uh, so just for example, you're talking with your friends and say, oh, should we eat uh, Indian and Italian? And everyone, everyone, everyone says, let's go eat Indian. And then someone else says, well, wait, wait, should we go eat at this vegan restaurant instead? And then say, uh, I don't want to eat there. Let's all go eat Italian. <laughs> you can introduce alternatives. You can introduce candidates. And it can cause the most favored candidate to lose popularity, even though everyone still preferred that most favored candidate to the introduced candidate. And there are some other desirable system, uh, desirable properties you might want. I don't think they're strictly part of the impossibility theorem. But for instance, if you are going to allow people to rank their preferences, it's, it'd be useful to rank the intensity of people's preferences. Like if you just have, like a board account, for instance, allows you, if there's five candidates, one gets five points, one gets four points, one gets three points. But if your candidates are, uh, I don't know, Trump, Romney, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and Hitler, <laughs> giving Hitler one point does not quite <laughs> capture just how much people really want to avoid that alternative. Um, and so you can, uh, you can get weird preference orderings. The end result of this impossibility theorem is that at least theoretically, this will of the people or the democratic mandate or so on is not possible. There is no such thing. Um, oh, rationality, basic rationality. If you prefer A to B to C, then you cannot prefer C to A, right? right? But lots of voting systems do not satisfy that requirement. Like uh, if you have a um, majority rule with runoff, depending on the order that you do the runoff, just like, you know, football tournament, um, you can have, you can have prefer A to B to C to A to... But for government legitimacy, isn't the important part not necessarily that they fulfill these things, but just that society accepts this as a method of making a legitimate government? Sure, but maybe you could get society to accept any kind of method. <laughs> well, yeah. Originally, so, it used to be the Sky Fairy said it's okay. Yeah, right. So maybe it's not really required to have a significant amount of people voting. Maybe, maybe society will accept... Um, well, for instance, I saw a proposal that was, we will pick a random lottery of people, 1,000 people, 10,000, whatever. They all have to vote, and they all get $1,000 for doing so. And it will be random, and so we don't have uh, any issues with 
So, you know, just having certain sub-segments of the population being the only ones who vote, they will be paid and that will get rid of all those problems of voter ignorance and so on. Um, I would really but, like but, that but, system. But that's only 1,000 or 10,000 people. Would people accept that as legitimate? I, I don't know. Depends the cost on. would go a lot down. Yeah. It would um, go down greatly on. in the The cost middle. would go down significantly, yes. Mm-hmm. Depends um, on how statistically literate people are, I guess. And also if they trust the system to actually be truly random. Right, that's another thing. That was the first thought that I had. I'm like, oh, yeah, random. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So... But I mean, I think what you can get people to accept as far as what you were mentioning, Ineos, that, you know, like it, it can, you can, we already used Hitler, so we can just jump straight to another hyperbole. <laughs> like North Korea is a thing, right? Yes, it is. So, I mean, many people that live there reputedly are okay with the way things are set up. Well, I mean, that's the way neo-reactionaries would like it. I personally like our current system, which is why I'm trying to lend it more legitimacy. Those people are ignorant, just like our voting populace. <laughs> Actually, I'd say probably... They don't actually want it to be like North Korea. I think they believe that if you institute a monarchy, you get something more like Singapore. I guess I meant that mm-hmm. by those people, um, people who live in North Korea oh. are kept very ignorant. They have low education. They don't have adequate information to make decisions. That's quite true. And a lot of people in um, the USA, which is the country in which we are right now, um, they either don't have adequate information or don't have adequate reasons to acquire that information. Well, I mean, significant reasons not to acquire that information. Acquiring yeah, the information big, against the leaders, uh, you know, makes you an enemy of the state. Here, so. I, USA. You, I thought we were so long on North Korea. No, I, I said that there's a there's a comparison there. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is. We want people to be well-educated, and if people are well-educated, well, maybe they would accept other voting systems that might work a little bit more to towards having better policy outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Maybe. So, um, I, I think that any, any situation, as you mentioned before, where we are trying to withhold information from people in order to increase the legitimacy of the government is probably not sustainable. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For the record, I do not advocate withholding information from anybody. I think that people who are very ignorant or very biased vote poorly. That is a negative externality. That's not good. So I am strongly against compulsory voting because compulsory voting does not solve the problem of getting people to actually investigate, learn the issues, learn basic social science or anything like that. I have a question. Yes. I brought up earlier the myth of the rational voter. Yes. So I've heard a lot of people recently, a number of people talking about how people vote in their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And um, I was made aware that maybe that is not the case. Could you talk about why people vote? Right. Um, um, or how people vote. How people vote. So uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter is a book by Brian Kaplan. Um, a little backstory about public choice. Public choice started with this insight that voters do not have much reason to get much knowledge. Um, but special interest groups do. 
And so public choice is kind of writing for a long time on this idea that uh, special interests capture policy. Uh, voters do nothing about it. You know, unions are an organized interest, but unemployed people are not, uh, for example. Um, Donald Whitman, I believe in the 90s, wrote a book called The Myth of Democratic Failure, where he argued that our political institutions are actually efficient, do capture um, voter preferences very well, and do get us uh, good public policy. Uh, so some of the things that the public choice theorists have been criticizing were, for example, um, the party system bundles issues and lets you maybe hide some issues from voters. Or, you know, if you have one-issue voters, you can give them that one issue and then give whatever you want to whatever lobbyists are, <laughs> are capturing your votes. Um, the party system actually could increase accountability. Right? You have, maybe not anymore, but at least in the 90s when it was written, I think you could say that you knew what the Republicans were for and what the Democrats were for. If you voted for that candidate, you pretty much knew what you were getting. It also turns out to be the case that most voters' political beliefs, values, and so on are uh, serially, serially aligned. So, What does that mean? Well, even things that may seem unrelated, like, for instance, uh, wanting to spend more money to send people to college and gun control. I don't see a connection between those two, but most Americans do. Hmm. <laughs> or if they don't see a connection between those two, it doesn't matter because their beliefs on them are serially, serially aligned anyway. And so the parties mostly get, are just collating what people want, and you can just it uh, you know simplifies information. That's just one example of Donald Whitman's arguments. He has several chapters. Very interesting book. Ryan Kaplan's response was the myth of the rational voter. Oh well, sorry, I should go back. Donald Whitman's uh, central argument is if you have these voters who are ignorant, that doesn't mean they're biased. If you have rational expectations. You will have some people who are, um, well, what's the old joke about rational expectations? You shoot, you know, 10 bullets on the left side of the dartboard and 10 bullets on the right side. And, oh, wow, I got all 20 right in the center because uh, it's because it's an average over preferences, but an average over preferences. Funny old joke, that. <laughs> yeah, uh, my, my precious self-esteem. <laughs> um, so... If you have a whole bunch of people who are wrong about a policy one way and a whole bunch of people who are wrong about it the other way, they cancel it out. The informed voters then decide to vote and you get a good policy. So Brian Kaplan's argument was um, voters aren't just ignorant, they're biased. A myth of the rational voter, he calls it rational irrationality. Uh, since that term might be confusing to all the rationalists out there, maybe uh, ra rational bias. No, still doesn't work, does it? <laughs> I mean, it could. Um, and it's not this. It, it's this idea that people people get some kind of utility for having beliefs that are kind of dumb. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. I I saw a Penn and Teller bit where Penn, you know, he does some half-ass thing with the card. He's like, "Here's the card," and he shuffles it really half-assedly back in the deck. And he's like, "Do you believe that card is shuffled well into the deck?" Some guy in the audience, and the guy says, "Yeah." He's like, "I have." 50 quid in my dressing room. I, I'm willing to go get it and bet you. Do you still want to tell me that that card isn't? No. <laughs> as soon as you impose a cost uh, for 
for believing the crazy thing you don't believe like that habit. And if voters have these biases, then things are actually a lot worse, a lot worse than you can get in the sort of rational ignorance world uh, where people are just ignorant. They don't care if special interests are capturing things because, um, well, so what Katrina brought up was that voters do not necessarily vote their self-interest is a robust, robust finding of decades of political science research. Everyone knows voters vote their pocketbooks except for political scientists who know pretty damn well that they don't. Older people are not more in favor of Social Security payments. Younger people are more in favor. Men are more in favor of abortion rights for women. People who uh, have children uh, have no different opinions on busing than people who do not have children. Take an issue. <laughs> there, there are there are some issues where people do seem to vote their self-interest, like uh, smokers are really opposed to anti-smoking laws. But the cost for them is different. Well, yeah, the cost for them is uh, immediate, obvious, significant. Mm. Um, most people, it seems, vote based on ideology. <laughs> And ideology tends to be, you know, a set of values. I, I think most people are actually fairly civic-minded when they vote. I think most people actually are trying to vote for what they think would be best for everyone in the country. So if people are voting their self-interest and are quite rational, that can get you bad policy, right? If people are voting their self-interest but are irrational, that might not get you bad policy, Right? You might, oh, I'm going to vote what's best for me. Oops, accidentally voted what's best for everybody and screws me over. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Conceivably might not get you bad policy. So I have a question then about voting your ideology in a two-party system. Mm-hmm. Let's say, for example, that uh, Bernie Sanders does not get the nomination and runs as a third-party candidate, or even doesn't run as a third-party candidate. There's still, you know, the Greens and Libertarians out there, mm-hmm. which a lot of people are like, I will not vote for Trump and I will not vote for Hillary. Yes. What's the, what's the um, implications of voting for a third party? Is it throwing away your vote? Is there some use to it? <laughs> we, we should pause Is it this. kind of like voting for the other guy? We should pause this and finish talking about the irrationality thing, because that is okay. a mm-hmm. kind of yeah. topic. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Okay, no, go uh, ahead. I'll we'll put that off till later. So, yeah, just to quickly finish the irrationality bit, if people are uh, ignorant, not biased, but altruistically minded, that can get you good policy, per Donald Whitman's argument. And per Brian Kaplan, if people are both not self-interested and not rational, worst of both worlds. Everyone is trying to help everyone else, but they are wrong about what will help everyone else. And Is that the world that al- we live Altruistically in? vote in the studio. I, I think it is. I kind of agree. Um, I mean, uh, Michael Humer put it this way, if there's a large consensus of experts who agree on a certain topic and you disagree with them, but you cannot even explain their best arguments for that topic back to them, you are probably wrong. And the central finding of Brian Kaplan's book is that the public's opinions about economics significantly diverges from economists' opinions about economics. And so you might say, well, economists are all just voting their self-interest <laughs> or just arguing this out of their self-interest. Um, he controls for income. It doesn't 
But every economist I've heard say that is also of the neoliberal school. Mm. Is there... So that is the other one. Well, maybe it's just ideological uh, economists are biased. He controls for ideology as well. His results get stronger because um, the actual, the typical economist is a moderate liberal and they were moderated somewhat in their beliefs for learning economics. That's, uh, so even like controlling for ideology, it seems like the problem is even worse than it's already previously believed to be. So that might be an even stronger argument for definitely not compulsory voting. Right. Uh, Jason Brennan um, has a book with someone. Uh, he's a political philosopher. His book, I don't remember her name, but they trade chapters arguing for and against compulsory voting. And the title of one of his chapters is Should We Force the Drunk to Drive? <laughs> so the... I think one way to respond to that is should we allow the drunks to drive, which is kind of what we do now, right? Uh, well, there are, In our current voting system, we allow people who yes. are very poorly educated and maybe maybe they're altruistic and irrational, we encourage them to vote. Yes, we do. Right. So that's what I was going to get back with. I you guess want to know if we should chapter. allow them to vote. Well, I, I earlier I was, I was talking about the idea of, before we got on the air, I was talking about the idea of compulsory voting like they do in Australia. And that was the line that came up from that chapter, should we force the drunk to drive? But all we do now is we don't force them, we just strongly encourage them to, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, how is that really that much better? Or is it just not, and it's like, well, this sucks, this sucks too, but that's not an argument in favor of this also. <laughs> well, you can also kind of imagine how it sounds like to someone else. They're like, oh, all these economists are telling us only economists should vote. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, well, <laughs> well, I mean, I, so that, that, that's persuasive to me, right? Oh, well, only, the, only the people who know what they're talking about should vote. Well, so, so I'm not, I, I'm not. And as he was saying, so, so the pocketbook is usually people's last concern. Right. Yeah, so, of course, there are problems with these sorts of oligarchical or uh, technocratic systems as well, which is, you know, if you like, it is possible in those systems. And I think probably likely that that self-interest motive probably increases the narrower the voting pool. Mm -hmm. So things change. It's also um, the, one of yeah. the arguments that the neo-reactionaries make, that the royalty or you know whoever happens to be installed as the rulers have very strong self-interest in making sure a society stays uh, stable and continues, yeah. much more so than the average guy on the street who owns nothing and doesn't matter, it doesn't care if the whole system burns down or not because what has he got to lose? I think that seems kind of hit or miss. <laughs> um, yeah. I have a question. How do prediction markets play into this? So prediction market is a market where you can buy shares of whether or not a future event will happen. So, for example, who's going to win the presidency in the upcoming election? You set out a bunch of shares for Trump and a bunch of shares for Clinton and people buy and sell those shares, and the price of those shares then corresponds to the uh, market-predicted probability that uh, the event will occur. So I mentioned, I mentioned PredictWise earlier, my fault for not going into that a little more carefully. PredictWise is a prediction market website, um, and it, it, it's just that. People can buy and sell shares of future events. But not presidential outcomes, as it turns out in the United States. Well, depends on how much you're willing to break the law. Right. Yeah. So the U.S. does have some anti-gambling laws. That's why the 
previous uh, leader in this one uh, stopped accepting money from U.S. citizens. But I mean, it, it keeps happening. More websites are popping up. You can you can find several. And if you if you want to flout the law <laughs> um, or just nebulously Sort of. I guess the so question that changes is gray incentives. Area. That changes incentives in in prediction when your money is behind it, right? Yes. Versus the uselessness of, of the pundit making class a vote, <laughs> making a vote, right? There's right. a there's a quote um, by somebody. It might be Daniel Gilbert uh, that betting or I guess betting in a prediction market is a way to call yourself on your bullshit. Yeah. So whereas whereas you might just say no no I'm pretty sure this is going to happen, but then the second like you said in the Penn and Teller example that you're asked to put your money down on it, you're like oh no. I'm not that confident. Despite how confident I said I was a second ago, I'm certainly not confident enough to bet five dollars. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yes. So, for example, right now, PredictWise gives Hillary Clinton around ninety-seven percent chance of taking the Democratic nomination, and the Democratic Party a sixty-seven percent chance of winning the election. If, in fact, the true probability is lower than that, you can make yourself a little bit of money because. You, you don't have to wait until the election is done. You can sell your shares when the price changes, right? So if, if you just are really sure that the Clinton-Trump race is just going to be super close, then uh, go go make some bets. Go 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 prove to the world that you're right. <laughs> is um is PredictWise taking money from American people? I, I'm not sure actually. Okay, because I would be interested in. I'd like to draw an anecdote. In one of Stephen Hawking's earlier books, he mentions how he originally betted a friend against the existence of black holes because he thought they didn't exist. So he bet that they did exist. Mm. Because he said, then that way, if they did exist, at least I won the bet. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so this, makes, this makes you want to go bet or to go put money down on predictable for Trump because mm-hmm. I don't want him to win. To be fair, uh, Stephen Hawking usually bets his actual opinion. Right, but I liked I, I liked just the joke. But, uh, Look, but, if society's going to collapse, at least you get a thousand bucks out of it. Well, yeah, exactly. but Stephen's right. You can actually use a prediction market as insurance against undesired outcomes. Yeah. Um, I don't think many people use them for that purpose, but it is if if Trump winning is worth negative a thousand dollars to you, go out. <laughs> That's the money on Trump, right? Hmm. But if enough people do that, doesn't it lose its value as a prediction market? It. Um, Probably not, because when you introduce more money into these markets, it increases the liquidity. So some other people are like, "What the probability change, but now the probability is wrong. I'm going to go take their money. Um, so it tends to increase interest to the market, increase money in the market. We should have an entire episode about prediction markets at some point, because I love prediction markets. Yes, they're great. And Robin Hansen has recruited systems of government based on prediction markets. Yeah, he calls it Futarchy? Futarchy. Futarchy. As long as we're bringing Robin Hansen into the mix, didn't he not get into some hot water? Well, a little bit. Wasn't one of his prediction market things shut down because they had a they had a an option to bet on like when the next terrorist attack will take place? Yes. Yeah, yes. there was some. Yes, and there was some on that. Uh, silly frenzy over. Um, over whether that would financially encourage people to do a terrorist attack, but the cap on spending in that market was a hundred dollars. People already like, really want to do it. It's like, oh man, you know what? That hundred dollars is really going to put me over the edge to set off that bomb. It, uh, it was very silly. There are people who worry that, yeah, prediction market could increase the incentives, but I mean, basically, the more money there is in the market, the less you can push the market in your favor by introducing money to it. 
So if you really don't want people to do that, you should really encourage prediction markets. I wasn't uh, agreeing with criticism of, of Hanson's yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I was just bringing up that it, that it was a thing that it, happened. Yeah, it, that was funny. Uh, sad. What was uh, Best Buy's competitor? Microcenter? No, no, no Microcenter's no. still around. Circuit City. Circuit City, yes. Um, Best Buy actually used prediction markets to predict the success of Blu-ray over HD DVDs. Really? Yes. Neat. And now Circuit City is out of business. Aww. Yeah. Well, I don't like either of them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool that they use prediction markets. It is yeah. cool. Uh, do we, or are we ready to change? No, I, I, I'm, I'm, yes. Do you want to ask the question again? Sure. The question was, uh, in a two-party system, what is the rationality or the impact of voting a third party? Are you just throwing your vote away or basically voting for the guy you hate more by voting for a third party? Or is there any good reason to do that? So in the United States system, I think I've never seen a voting system that is not subject to tactical voting. Tactical voting meaning you do not vote your highest preference in the hopes of helping someone else win, right? So lots of people, for example, their highest preference is Bernie Sanders or Gary Johnson, but they will switch their votes over to the Democrat or Republican because they feel like it's uh, throwing their vote away. There is a law called Duverger's Law, which says that any first-past-the-post system, like the United States, strongly tends to a two-party system for exactly this reason, tactical vote. So voting for a third party is a rejection of tactical voting. Um, is it throwing your vote away? Well, since I think your vote doesn't do much to begin with, <laughs> I think do whatever whatever makes you feel good. Um, but but does a popular third party candidate running um, that can partic- that can change the outcome? Yeah. Um, Everyone thinks so. I heard yet. the reason that Bill Clinton won was because Ross Perot was in the race. That is the theory. But in point of fact, um, people, um, they polled Ross Perot voters and they would have voted in about equal parts for Clinton and Bush. Oh. Yeah. And if you go to uh, Bush versus Gore, a lot of people say, well, uh, Nader cost Gore the election. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out when you pulled those people that most of them said they wouldn't have voted for Gore anyway. They were excited about Nader. They didn't actually care about voting. They, you know, they cared about a candidate. So, which is probably mostly what you get when you have a popular third-party candidate. So it seems plausible that that could happen. Uh, introducing a third-party candidate could siphon votes away from one candidate, lead another to winning. Of uh, the two best examples we have of it in recent history seems not to be the case. I say go vote for third party. Have fun. But your third party candidate won't win anyway. It's more a signaling thing. I've heard heard that the main two parties that are more closely aligned with the third parties, if they see a third party gaining a lot of popularity, will try to shift their views slightly towards them to pull in those voters the next election. Can you actually make your preferred party lean slightly more your way by going... By voting for a third party? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) There are competing models of voting. I think the one most people are familiar with is the median voter theorem, which says that candidates trend towards the median voter because the further away you get. So if you say it's just a two-issue thing, and like I said before, in the United States, it kind of is. Say it's just a two-issue election, you have left and right, 
Um, and if you both start 25% between left and the center, 25% between right and center, then you can scoop up some of the votes that the other person has by moving a little bit closer to the center. And this process continues until both parties <laughs> are spouting the exact same thing. So that's the median voter model. And in that model, the answer is no. If you move closer to one of those third parties, then you are losing some votes that are just you know a little bit further away from the tail of the right and so on. So you trend back to the median. There are stochastic voting models. They're a little weird. They treat voting as if uh, it, it's called a trembling hand. Basically, voters make mistakes. Uh, <laughs> oops, I flipped the switch for the wrong guy. <laughs> so it, it, it doesn't actually... <laughs> doesn't seem like a very good model. <laughs> it doesn't actually have to be that way. Uh, you could just model it as, say, um, politicians make mistakes in calculating what voters want. It can give you the same results. Or voters make mistakes in calculating what politicians are giving them. In those models, you actually do get something a lot closer to the social welfare function, if you want to believe that such a thing exists. And so if there is a strong market for far-left beliefs, then that will be reflected accurately in political outcomes. So, What is the social welfare function? So, um, That's a utility function for the greater betterment of social welfare? Aggregated utility function across. Oh, yeah. Across an entire population? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a it's an economic artifice. It's useful for some analysis. Probably such a thing doesn't really exist because people aren't actually utility maximizers. Well, people are biased. <laughs> 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 I don't think anyone here will disagree with that. So I don't know which of those models actually predicts things better. That is a constant battle in journals and... I simply cannot give you a good answer. But one thing we can say about first-past-the-post voting is that even if a third party does become large enough to become viable, they'll simply become the new second party, and we will be once again stuck in a two-party system. Yes. That is Duverger's law. It is not absolute. There are countries that have first-past-the-post systems that have more than one party. No. Just a few. Okay. We can put it as a link for the... The listeners, but I have a graph. Someone measured, they measured what they call effective parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States actually has less than two effective parties. <laughs> something like 1.8. Beautiful. I, I don't remember how they measured it exactly, but there are a few countries, um, but the strand, trend is very obviously strongly towards two parties. But I think South Korea is one. I think, um, I can't remember. There are a few. Huh. Okay. Yeah. You had a question earlier? I thought your question was about what's the way to, what's the best way to run things or the best way to change things up. I think that we talked about that. I think that we already covered that when we were talking about um, arrows and possibility theorem, and then um, maybe even Robin Hansen's rule by prediction markets idea. Mm-hmm. And or voting lottery. Or voting lottery. Yeah. So we we've gone over a lot of that stuff. Well, I think. Would you pre- would you prefer a single like a single divisible vote system or or a randomized lottery, or what? I mean, what would you like if you had your druthers? You're yeah, a pretty I mean, educated guy. Uh, rule by Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to argue with that one. That's not true. What, what is it really? I uh, 
We all know we just have to find the rightful caliph. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I am not smart or informed enough to answer that question. I you, got, you have to have an I opinion. Have, I have some things that I would prefer to what we have now, but I'm not sure that I prefer them very strongly. Like, I like the idea of a voting lottery. I like the idea of voting systems that uh, rank candidates because those tend to trend towards the least unpopular candidate. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you have very divisive candidates, those voting systems tend towards the least divisive candidate. So those have some very nice aspects. But the, the range of voting possibilities is so large. Um, I want to keep things democratic, but how democratic? I mean, if we can incentivize people to actually learn something about policy and be educated, informed, expressing, uh, expressing their opinions honestly, well, like I said, I don't think any voting system is immune to tactical voting, but some are worse than others. So you're not of the opinion that first past the post is the worst? No. Okay. No. Um, What's the worst voting system you can think of? Ruled by Kim Jong. <laughs> That's not a voting system, though. <laughs> it's well, one person, one vote, one vote. We are a democratic republic of North Korea. Didn't you see the country name? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a voting system. All votes are made by one person. Uh, no. Some of them have some pretty bad properties. I really like the idea of monotonicity. If a candidate gets more popular, they shouldn't lose. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of uh, the, um, you know. Ranked preference? Uh, no, the. Um, runoffs? Yeah, runoffs. Yeah. Run- runoff systems. But I do not have a strong answer for you. I think, honestly, the biggest problems we have are voter irrationality and. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest problem. Well then, well, then in that case, which voting system is the most entertaining? <laughs> See, I think that one's really boring. It's, it's always like, Kim Jong-un. Like, I grew up in a very political family, yeah, and every four seen, years it's like the Super Bowl of But politics. have you seen the advertisements that they make about how they're going to blow up America? They're baffling <laughs> and crazy and... It's the funny if that, they weren't so terrifying and sad. The things that Tim finds most interesting are different than other people. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, he has um, special taste. I'm not a big fan of American political theater. I never listen to political speeches. I never watch the debates. The way candidates talk makes my skin crawl. <laughs> I found Personally. I get around some of that by finding transcripts online and having my computer read it out in a monotone, chocolate language. <laughs> and that way you lose the, the emphasis and the, the voice and the power. Mm. And you can just get the message and then you find that it's just what everyone else is saying. I yeah, used to actually enjoy awful. listening to political speeches and then I met Tim. <laughs> and he ruined it for me. <laughs> yeah, it's probably about time for us to wrap up. This has been great. Thank you so much for lending your expertise yeah. and economic wisdom, public choice wisdom. Sorry, <laughs> I got it wrong. Thank you for before. having me. And if I said anything that was wrong, it's Brian Kaplan's fault. <laughs> Is there anything you want to say before we go or anything that you want to plug or promote? No, sorry, I've got nothing. I did not come prepared to answer that question. Okay. <laughs> if that changes, let us know if there's anything else.
Yeah, we'll um, put in links. Well, I was hoping to be able to solve the problem of how to fix the voting system. I, today. Yeah, today. Yeah, just hour. right here, so right like, now. That, that's what we try and do is we, we try to find a problem and then solve it within, you know, under 90 minutes. When well, does that work? Not so, not once Ever. yet, but so yeah. far. <laughs> we're, 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 I, I, want, I want one before I didn't can... realize that was the goal of this podcast. That's the goal of life. Oh. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right? You got big goals, man. Solve all the problems. First step <laughs> is to become God. <laughs> I think Plato equated democracy with anarchy, and then Ben Franklin said, yeah, it's the worst, but it's better than all the other ones out there, right? Yeah. I heard I heard that attributed to Churchill. Yeah, I think I've heard it. How about Lincoln or Mahatma Gandhi? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That man's name? Albert Einstein. <laughs> Use the force, Harry, yeah, by Gandalf. You can't believe everything you read on the internet. Well, uh, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. Later. <laughs>